This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 1st, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. At the border, a constitution-free zone is in effect, running from the border to 100 miles inland. And in that zone, Customs and Border Patrol has broader authority than you might hope. The justification for that 100-mile ban around the U.S. is not at all clear. Chris Montoya is a 21-year Customs and Border Patrol agent. We spoke earlier this month. People who follow uh, the work of the Cato Institute, specifically people like Matthew Feeney and Patrick Eddington and uh, Julian Sanchez and some others, uh, you may be aware of what is known as the constitution-free zone. I'm not sure if uh, Pat Eddington uh, coined that phrase himself, but uh, the idea is that there's this 100 miles within the continental United States where Customs and Border Patrol have, let's say, special powers that they do not have elsewhere in the United States. Where did that come from? Well, according to the Immigration and Nationality Act, I think it was, gosh, I can't remember the year, but there was this phrase, reasonable distance from the border. Now, I don't know how it got to be 100 miles, but it's not in statute that I could find. So I'm not sure how that really got to be uh, a fixed distance. At any rate, though, um, constitution-free zone uh, at the ports of entry, specifically, that's clearly the case. You know, when you come through a port of entry, there's no real expectation of many rights, you could say, I guess. You know, I've passed through ports of entry, and they make you state your citizenship, and they have a great latitude of questions they can ask you. You know, they're pretty uh, hardcore. They can be at the ports of entry, and for good reason. You know, I, I understand. Um, and, but the question is, is uh, that 100 miles, how is, does the Fourth Amendment, how is it enacted? How is it, uh, is it enforced? Is it, how is it dealt with within that 100 miles of the border? And it, it can vary, right? I mean, that's uh, the question is, at checkpoints, like where I used to work in Arizona, at the primary position at a check, an inland checkpoint, the questions, they're bounded by that Supreme Court decision from the 70s, Martinez Fuerte. That's, uh, that's clear. And those questions are pretty straightforward, short, and specifically address a person's immigration or right to be in this country status. Right. We can understand that at a port of entry, uh, if you are determining whether or not someone is eligible to be in the United States, that uh -huh. you ask some fairly pointed questions. Sure. In, in your years uh, at Border Patrol, you know, give us a sense of what Border Patrol feels that its mandate is. Well, I can't speak for the agency itself. I mean, I can speak to my experience in my personal and when you're faced with a citizen or a person coming through the checkpoint, say, and you know you're abiding by a certain set of rules, you have to discipline yourself to abide by those rules. So, for example, if somebody shows up at the primary agent, I'll say, good morning, uh, please state your citizenship. And they'll respond, say, I'm a U.S. citizen. Well, have a nice day. You know, unless I can articulate something that I see or, or smell or something like that, that I can, I can justify a further intrusion 
say, on the civil liberties of that person going north or whatever the case may be, then and only then would I, you know, further that that intrusion, say. Or if I say, please state your citizenship, and they answer me, say, in Spanish, and they present immigration documents, so then I would say, well, you know, please uh, follow me to secondary so I can look through your documents, make sure everything's up and up, and then you can be on your way. So, again, that's well within the... Uh, the guidelines of the fourth and the Martinez Forte, you know, the constraints placed on on that specific encounter. But I think what happens, there's a, maybe a sense among certain agents that the checkpoint is a place where we can maybe engage in, in more intrusions based on the notion that we're charged with preventing illegal entries, and secondly, uh, preventing narcotics enter into the U.S. So that's very difficult for some people to sort of not focus on. They want to do what they perceive to be the right thing. For example, some agents may ask a few more questions in primary, say, where are you going? You know, where were you? What you got in the trunk, those things. Now, those things are clearly out of, uh, out of bounds, so to speak, from the mandate in Martinez Forte, because those things really had nothing to do with immigration. But those things do get asked. Heck, even, even I've asked that question maybe a time or two. You know, it's hard to, you, you want to do your job effectively and fulfill the mission that you were hired to do. What is your evaluation of the interior checkpoints run by Customs and Border Patrol? In my opinion, the checkpoints, and this is just not my opinion, but it's, it's a long-held notion that checkpoints were never intended to be effectual at that point. So if you look at the, uh, you know, people have brought this up, you know, at, at a checkpoint, they point to the fact that there are so few apprehensions made or few seizures made, and you compare that to the expenditures that go into maintaining that checkpoint, and that's, that's a correct statement. I think what happens is that historically checkpoints were meant to impede or serve as a, a barrier just enough, just enough of, a, of an impediment so that illegal, illicit activity will have to go around the checkpoint, thereby making it easier to detect and interdict. That's the rationale often, often put forward by CBP. I know that's how it was explained to us in the past. And that's not a wrong idea. If it functions well, and that's the design, then when you, and you do see statistics, at least I've seen them in, in the past, where that roving patrol on either side of the checkpoint produces results. Now the question is, does that data get linked to the effectiveness of the checkpoint? Or is that taken of its own accord and just countered as an apprehension or a seizure just because they were roving patrol and not affiliated with any checkpoint? That's another thing that I'm not sure. I don't know that. I should, but I don't. How do you measure the effectiveness of a checkpoint when that data is, is inconclusive or incomplete or unknown? So, for example, if you were to have a checkpoint 
And for a month, there's no apprehensions at all at the checkpoint, nothing, no seizures, no apprehensions, but all around you, you've interdicted, say, a, a few human smuggling cases, some narcotics, uh, this or that or the other. So is that tied into the effectiveness of the checkpoint or is it not? And that's the big question. I think some people say, well, not really, you know, that's just, um, they, they'd be doing that activity anyway, roving patrol. And if you took down the checkpoint, heck, you could just send everybody out to do a roving patrol and, and deal with it that way. Again, in my estimation, that checkpoint serves as just enough of an impediment, just barely enough so that illicit activity has to seek you know, further their activities elsewhere around the checkpoint. Now, if there's a way to count those statistics in relationship to the, uh, the checkpoint, say, that might be a better argument for, for maintaining them. How risky is it to be a Customs and Border Patrol agent? I, you know, you hear claims that Border Patrol agents are in a particularly risky job. Is that borne out by the data? I actually wrote a, an op-ed piece a while back where I, where I condensed my, uh, some thesis work I did at the University of Arizona into an op-ed stating that on balance and using the metrics set forth by the uh, Uniform Crime Report of the FBI, on balance, Border Patrol agents face less danger in the execution of their jobs than other law enforcement agencies do. I took into account total assaults, assault rate, injury rates, total injuries. Also, what was very helpful is that I looked at how often uh, U.S. attorneys were prosecuting subjects for assaulting federal agents. And I found that assaults against Department of the Interior personnel were at a much, much higher rate than prosecutions for assault against subjects who assaulted Border Patrol agents. So that, I think, is a big one where you have the U.S. attorney using a vast amount of resources to prosecute subjects who have assaulted Department of Interior personnel, where when it comes to CBP personnel, specifically Border Patrol, it was very few in my research. And that was, again, a big, a big one for me to... Uh, so on balance, using those metrics and a few others I have in there, I found that on balance, again, the job of an agent is a little bit less dangerous than other law enforcement agencies. But it doesn't mean that it's completely safe. I, I talked about this a bit earlier. In 2010, an agent, a BP agent in Nogales was shot and killed by uh, drug smugglers. Now, it's a horrible, tragic event. And you know it, it can be dangerous. It really can be, but what I sought to uh, undermine was the, the, the narrative that the administration puts forth and other groups are putting forth that it's so dangerous that it's the worst thing you can experience as an enforcer on the border. But the evidence countered that, not me. It wasn't my opinion. The evidence countered that assertion, that claim, you know, that narrative on all the rhetoric that, that accompanied it. Chris Montoya is a 21-year veteran of Customs and Border Patrol. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.